Psalm 132. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured. How he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard, it, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jer. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. If you could go back to the city of Jerusalem during Bible times, the biggest thing you'd see is the temple. This beautiful building was designed by King David and built by King Solomon, and they believed that it was the home of the God of the universe. Wait, I thought God's home was in heaven. Well, the whole point of this earthly temple is that it's the place that overlaps with God's heavenly home. The temple is where God lives and rules all creation as king. That's cool. but. Even Solomon, who built the temple, didn't believe that it could contain the God of the universe, right? Yeah, the building was just a symbol, and it pointed to the fact that all of creation is God's temple. And that's actually what the first page of the Bible, Genesis 1, is all about. Really? It says that creation is God's temple? Well, it doesn't need to say it. The whole story shows it. In Genesis 1, God creates an ordered world out of a dark wasteland by speaking in a series of seven days. Then on the seventh day, God's presence fills creation as he takes up his rest and rule. Similarly, the tabernacle and later the temple were built and dedicated in a series of seven speeches and seven days, after which the priest or king could rest and rule in God's presence. Ah, so all of creation is where God intends to dwell. It's like his temple. Exactly. Now, turn the page to Genesis 2 and we get another portrait of creation. This one focuses in on the land. And in the center of the land is a region called Eden, which in Hebrew means delight. And in the middle of delight, God plants a garden in which God and humanity live together. And that's why the temple was modeled after the garden, filled with imagery of gold and flowers. The menorah symbolized the tree of life. It's the place where God dwells with his people. Oh, got it. And check this out. 
in the temple, the Israelite priests and Levites were to work and to keep the temple in God's presence. This is exactly the job description given to humanity in the Garden of Eden. So these humans were the first priests. But instead of ruling with God, they wanted to rule on their own terms, and they're exiled from the Garden Temple. And like Adam and Eve, Israel's leaders also wanted to rule on their own terms, and they too were exiled. The temple was destroyed, and this left them wondering, did God give up on Israel? Will God bring about a new creation? Well, the biblical prophets anticipated the day when God would create a new temple with a new priesthood. That's when God's presence would fill all of creation. And when the Israelites returned to the land, they did rebuild the temple. But that temple didn't turn out the way the prophets hoped. In fact, later Israelite prophets said that this temple was hopelessly corrupt. So they're still waiting for the ultimate temple. And here we come to the story of Jesus. He said that through him, God's presence and rule was coming into our world in a new way. And he presented himself as a new kind of priest. But Jesus wasn't a priest, and he didn't work in the temple. Right. Jesus said that God's presence, his rest and rule, was filling the world through his own life, death, and resurrection. Jesus was claiming that he was the true temple. And this new temple would expand out to include all of creation. That's a really big claim. And it got even bigger. After his resurrection, Jesus said that God's presence would come to dwell in and among his followers so that they would become mini temples. Communities of people where God rests and rules. Exactly. This is the Bible's vision of the church, which is described as a temple. Not a building, but people. Yeah, like when Peter says, you all are living stones built up as a temple for God's spirit to dwell. So at the end of the story, do we ever get a new physical temple? Well, not exactly. What we see is a renewed cosmic temple, just like Genesis 1. And this new creation doesn't need a temple building because through Jesus, all creation is now the place where God rests and rules the world with his people. Well, if you would, go ahead and grab a Bible or whatever you read the Bible on and go to Psalm 132. If you would, let's uh, pray and then we'll dive right in. Jesus, thank you that you're with us that your story is a story of your witness. That as the video showed and as your story declares, and hopefully our lives testify to you that, that we have a long history of you um, intervening and being present. So God, as we talk about that today, as we talk about the reality of you, as we talk about the good news of you, would it shape us into a people who believe that when you are there, Hope is there. And good news is here. God, lead us, be with us. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So I just want to begin with a big question that will kind of guide the rest of our time together. 
And, and in some ways, you could say it's the question that we've been asking throughout the series. It's the question that Advent asks us. It's the question that we wrestle with as we read the story of Scripture. And it is this. Do you have hope in the possibility of God's presence? Do you have hope in the possibility of God's presence? Now, that question is a little abstract, maybe a little weird to get your head around. The way that Paul phrases this in 2 Corinthians is that where the Spirit of God is, there is freedom. So maybe that's a helpful way to think about it. Do you believe, though, that where God is, there is potential for something good? Do you, do you believe that when God enters into a space that it means good news for that space? Do you believe that God's presence is rife with potential because he is rife with holiness and power and goodness and that he is active and moving? Do you have hope in the possibility of God's presence? And it is an important question for us to wrestle with right now and throughout our entire lives because though this may be a massive oversimplification, you could say at one level, the entire story of the Bible is about this question, which is the hope of the presence of God. I really love the way that this video kind of like walks through this story. So if you even open your Bible to the very first page of Genesis chapter 1, that is literally, literally the very first question that is on the page. It says the world is without form and void, but God's presence is there. And if you're an early reader of this story, the question that is evoked to you is, oh no, the world is without form and void. God's here. Is that good news? Does that mean something is possible for this space that is without form and void and is a wilderness? Does this presence mean something? And that continues to be true. That same energy or theme continues to run throughout the biblical narrative. So even after the flood, the first thing we read is that God's presence is there. And again, readers of the Bible would be like, oh man, something terrible has just happened and yet God's presence is there. Does that signify something? Does that mean something? Is that good news? If you keep reading, you see Moses interacts with the presence of God in the wilderness, and you have to again ask, is that good news? Does that mean something? The people of Israel are led out of Egypt and slavery by the presence of God, and again, does that feel hopeful? Is it loaded with potential? And that is especially true of the season that we are in right now, the story of Advent, which is the story of God's presence coming to dwell amongst us. And again, the question as you read Matthew 1 is, do you have hope in the presence of Jesus? Does that indicate something big and good and beautiful? Does it mean that something is on the horizon? Is that good news? And I think one of the reasons that that is kind of a difficult question for us to answer, is it good news, is that talking about something like the presence of God feels abstract. Like, what is the presence of God? And I, I think my first experience, when I hear someone say, like, the presence of Jesus, I think my first inclination is to imagine that we're talking about some kind of mystical or ethereal experience. And that might be true, and that might be relevant, and that might be really powerful, but is that always what it means, that it means some kind of mystical experience? And how does that then also indicate that it's the hope of the world? That's why for Advent, we have been walking through the Psalms of Ascent. 
Because they are these prayers and these songs that Israel would offer as they journeyed to the temple, the place of God's presence, the place where God's presence was at least most tangibly experienced for the people of Israel. And so they would sing and pray these songs as they moved into that space. And it kind of functioned in the same way that the doxology functions for us. It's a calling to the people to be like, hey, God is calling you into his presence. He's welcoming and inviting you. Would you pay attention? Would you be prepared? Do you want to meet him? It's a call and response by the people and their God. And so they would pray these things as they walked towards the temple, cultivating in themselves hope in the possibility of God's presence. For example, if you were here last week, I think Psalm 130, and Heather talked about this in a way that's just really easy to see. Because Psalm 130 says, I hope, Lord, my whole being hopes and waits for the promises of God. So that they would say that as they're traveling up to the temple, like we hope, Lord, our whole being waits for you. It longs for you. It is like cultivating in them this hope that God's presence might be loaded with possibilities as they enter into that space. And then the response comes at the end of Psalm 130. Why do they do this? Because faithful love and great redemption is with our God. So they begin to pray it as they enter into the temple, cultivating expectation, knowing that there is potential and possibility loaded into the presence of God because there is faithful love and great redemption there. They would pray this so that they would enter into the temple expectant. But as the video highlighted, it was not simply about that moment, simply about entering into the temple or simply about entering into a church service and gathering around the, temp- the table. It is about more than those things. Entering into the temple or cultivating a sense of hope, it pointed beyond the limited activity. To the hope of Israel, and even to the hope of the entire world. And it's this big story of hope that runs throughout Psalm 132, where it like focuses in on the temple, but always with an eye towards this bigger movement of hope. And so if you look at Psalm 132, you see this. The psalm begins with this section 1 through 5, and it reminds us of the story that we just heard in The video accepts it kind of does so in a way that is attuned to King David's heart. King David is the guy who begins the preparations for the temple. And so it just like zones in on on, on his attentiveness and what he was thinking. And it says that he made a vow to the Lord to build the temple. And in verse 3 it says, Remember how he wouldn't enter his house or he wouldn't go to bed or he wouldn't even close his eyes until he found a resting place for God. And it gives you a sense of that like expectation and that hope that is loaded into this thing that he's doing. He's like, I can't sleep. I can't go to bed. I can't close my eyes. I can't enter my home until I have finished this work. I've found a resting place for you. Then in verse 6 through 10, the tone kind of changes and switches tenses because it fast forwards into the future because David did not get to construct the temple. His son Solomon does. And so this moment in the text is like sort of told from the perspective of Solomon, and he is celebrating that the thing has been done, that the temple has been completed. And so he begins this familiar rhythm that we're used to in the Psalms of Ascent of inviting the people to worship and asking God to meet them there. 
And so those first few sections, you kind of have the hope that's loaded into the temple construction. And what I love about who is writing this moment is that it's David in the first part is the, the character, and Solomon in the second part is the, is the character. And both of them have a lot of things going on in life. But if you know the story of David, David is the king of Israel. And he comes into power in kind of a complicated way. It's a change of dynasties. So he enters into a situation that is fraught with tension, and then he has the normal responsibilities of just being a political leader, like tax policy, and raising a family, and defending the nation, and building infrastructure. And yet, in this psalm, he says that seeking and finding home for the presence of God is the most important thing that he's doing. He's like, I have a literal nation to run that was divided by war that I took over because of a dynasty change, and yet the most important thing that I can possibly do above all of those responsibilities is find a dwelling place for the Lord. And the same thing is true of Solomon in this moment. Solomon is maybe the most powerful and prosperous king in all of Israel's history. He takes what David gave him and expands it. He works on massive infrastructure projects, has all the responsibilities, again, of a political leader, and the world is paying homage to him. And yet he too sees the presence of God as the hope of the world. That should be the central task of his work. And the question is why? Like, why have we spent so much time in these Psalms? Why are David and Solomon dedicating themselves to the building of the temple and the pursuit of the presence? Like, why is that the central piece of their work in the story that we celebrate at Advent? But we get our answer in the third part of this psalm. Because again, the character and the tone changes, and now God begins to speak and address his people. And so if before you had the rhythm of asking God to be present. Now in this third part, God is present. He's engaging with his people and he begins to speak to them. And in this moment, he offers them five promises. And in those five promises, you get to see why are Solomon and David putting their hope in this place. And you see it in verse 11 and 12. It says, the Lord swore to David a true promise that God won't take back, that I will put one of your children on your throne. And if your children keep my covenant and the laws that I will teach them, then their children too will rule on your throne forever. And so the first promise that's loaded in there is that they will be ruling forever. Now, in the immediate context, that just means that, that, that Israel will have like a political stability forever in the line and lineage of David. And if you're Solomon, that has like deep resonance. You're like, oh, that's exactly what I need to hear. That that's a real hope for a real situation. But it always speaks beyond that. Because loaded into the story of David is also the hopes of some future king who will be better than even David was, who will make all things right. And so loaded into this moment is a hope for the people of Israel there and a hope that will come in the end. So that will reign forever. Then in verse 14, you get another present. God says, this is my residence forever. I will live here because I wanted it for myself. The promise is that he will dwell with his people forever. You've asked me to be present to you. You've asked me to be with you, and I will dwell with you forever. In verse 15, we get another promise. He says, and I will 
certainly bless your food supply, and I will fill your needy full of food. It's a promise of care. That as I am with you, and as I am assuring that you are a whole people, and as I am ruling and reigning, that I will also be present to you and care for you. Verse 16, another promise. He says, I will dress your priests in salvation and your faithful with shouts of joy. Being dressed in salvation is a common metaphor all throughout Scripture. It means that you like put on something that does not belong to you. It's a gift that gives you welcome and entrance into the party. A new set of clothes that would mean that you could enter into royal places. Sometimes Paul will say, clothe yourself with Christ, or you have been clothed with Christ. So you've baptized, and therefore you're clothed with Christ. So he promises to dress them in salvation. And then finally, in verse 18, he says, and I will dress his enemies in shame, but the crown he wears will rule, will shine forever. Which is a promise to undo what is broken in the world. To undo what is unjust and what is evil and what is wrong. To undo what brings pain and confusion. Now, if you're Solomon and you're hearing these promises or you're Israel and you're praying these promises as you walk up to the temple, like they have immediate resonance. You're a king, you're a people. This hope runs your life. But these promises are bigger than just Israel. They run through the entire story of Scripture and they speak to the hope of new possibilities for us and the entire world. What God is offering to his world generally. Now Israel prays this because they need this. They need to hear these words, need to know that something more is possible. Right? Even at the time of David and Solomon, which you could say is maybe the best moment in Israel's history, there is still a recognition that all is not right in their world. Like if you just know the story of David, David is not all right. Solomon is not all right. Their history is loaded with lament and tragedy and pain and failure, and their future also will be loaded with lament and sadness and pain and failure. And they pray these words throughout that story, throughout moments long past Solomon, when they're into kings and dynasties that are tyrants, or even when they're exiled into a foreign land. And why do they pray those things? Because they need to know that where God's presence is, there is still possibilities despite whatever circumstances are happening around them. They need to know that hope in God's presence is not simply abstract, that it is a reality that sustains them. And specifically in this text, it is the hope that God himself is bringing something new. If you're looking at the section of 11 verses 18, and you just account the times that God says he will do something, you get about nine different moments. That God says, I will do something, that I will dress them in salvation, that I will care for their poor, that I will dwell with them forever, that I will ensure that one of their children lives and rules. It's a promise that God is taking initiative and that he himself is making something new possible. This is what every moment of good news in the story looks like. This is the video told in Genesis 1, when God's presence was on the surface. He initiates multiple times to turn the world into a beautiful and good place. 
In Genesis 12, God's presence shows up after the fall of Babylon, calls Abram into a new life. In the Exodus, God's presence shows up, rescues the people, and leads them into a new life. And even as you fast forward into the story to when Israel enters into exile, God's presence leaves Jerusalem and follows the people into exile so that in the worst moments of their life, God's presence, his initiative, and his new creation work would be present to them and with them. That's for Israel what God's presence means. It means new possibilities because God is on the move in and around and through them. Now, nowhere is this better apparent than in the season of Advent. Even the story of the season of Advent, Matthew chapter 1, begins by evoking this same kind of reality. If you look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, The text begins by saying, this is a genealogy of the ancestors of Jesus Christ. So this is a record of the ancestors of Jesus Christ. And that's what we use in English for it. But if you're reading this in Greek, the word genealogy or record would be Genesis. And if you're like a Jewish reader, then immediately that begins to evoke something. You're like, oh, we're reading an origin story. We're reading the beginning of something. This is evoking some level of potential, some level of new reality. And if that wasn't enough, you're like, okay, well, what does it mean that there's some new reality here? Then in verse 23, the writer of Matthew goes on to say, look, a virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, if we're paying attention to the larger story, it's like a wink and a nudge to what's already been happening all throughout history, that God's presence is here. And that must mean that something good is happening. And what is it that's happening in this moment? Well, the writer says right above this in verse 21, it says that she will give birth to a son and you will call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Now again, just in case we're not paying attention to God's presence being with us, Jesus' name means God saves. So in this moment, you have God saves, he will save his people. And the indication to everybody who's reading is like, oh man, something has just happened. God is present. He's hovering over the surface of the waters again. He's entered into this wild moment. And that means that something new, something life-changing is possible because God is present. Because God is here. because he has taken the initiative. And what is he here to do? Oh, he's here to rescue his people from their sins. Or as it would be unpacked in the psalm, he is here to rule, to dwell, to care for his people, to dress them in righteousness and undo what is evil and broken. He is here to deliver his people from their sins. The hope of Advent is the presence of God with us the possibility of new creation through him. Monsieur, more than anything else throughout Advent, I think that's the thing that we need to know. That God's presence equals new possibilities because it means that God is at work. That God is at work in the world and that God is also at work in us. That's maybe the most beautiful moment in this story is that as you're reading 
the psalm, it can be easy to think that it's a big cosmic hope. It only speaks to the world. Or even as you read Jesus' story to say that it only speaks to the world. But this story of Jesus' origins, it doesn't begin cosmically. It begins in the ordinary lives of real people. Even just the genealogy of Jesus is a testament that God is working in strange and unexpected places. This is a list of patriarchs and prostitutes and tyrants and regular moms and just regular humans that God has somehow stepped into the midst of and brought new things out of it. And so as we hear that story the same way in the psalm, there's like a dual hope to it, that God is doing something in the world around us and that he is also doing something in our lives. And that as we recognize and pay attention to the reality of God's presence, it means that there is something new happening, that there is new potential, new possibility. That if God can form the void and bring hope to Israel, then what can he do right here and right now? You say, what do you think would happen if that was true of us, if we believed that about God? What do you think would be possible or what would happen to us as a people if we believed that God's presence equaled possibilities? That when God's presence was here and around us and in us, because that's our story, that it meant God was moving and acting and bringing a new world into reality. If we really believed that, what would be possible? I think first it would just mean that we would be a people of deeper trust a people of deeper hope. We would be a people of potential. And when I say that we'd be a people of potential, I don't mean that we have like so many latent gifts that we just tap into, though that might be true. I just mean that we would believe that the world is rife with potential because God is there. And it would change the way that we engage in his work. It would change the way we see ourselves. It would begin to change the way we see other people because it's not through our own abilities or their abilities or the world's abilities, but it's through what God is doing. I think if we actually believed that, we would not be so quick to give up on the work that God is doing in us. I think one of the things I do most constantly as a pastor is just try to point out in people's lives where I see God working. Because it is so easy to get despondent about where we are and give up on what God is doing. And if we believed that there was always new possibilities in the presence of God, then we would be so much slower, I think, to give up on ourselves or to give up on the work that God is doing in others. We'd be slower to bail on community or to bail on the hard work of friendship or to bail on the hard work of relationships because the reality of God's presence in the midst of something means that he is always doing something and always bringing about new possibilities. Not us, not that other person, but him through his initiative. We turn us into a people who believe in a new potential because of what God is doing. Now that may be good news, But it does leave us with a bunch of questions, which is like, what do we as a people actually do with that? What does it mean for us to live our lives in light of that? And I think the thing that we need to do first as the people of God is cultivate hope in the possibility of God's presence. But as Israel prayed the Psalms of Ascent, they knew that it was more than just remembering. 
That's an important part of what they were praying, the story of God, remembering what he's done, remembering what he's accomplished. But they were also entering into God's presence. And as they entered into God's presence, they were experiencing this thing they were telling people about. And Israel was directly invited to participate. Right? As the video showed that they were called to be priests mediating the presence. And that is even more true of us. We have been filled with God's presence. We are a living temple, which means that we don't just remember that God's presence came. We don't just celebrate that God's presence came. We actively experience, participate in the work that God is doing here and now to rescue. And so our first job is to curate hope that that is true, to tell that story, to enter in and participate and experience in a way that actually cultivates hope in the presence of God. This is why we pray the Psalms and retell the Advent story to remind ourselves and curate hope in God's presence. The second thing that we need to do, though, is we need to pay attention. I think that's one of the things that's most interesting about Jesus' story is how many people just don't pay attention to what's happening. Or maybe not even don't pay attention, it's that they ignore it, or they disdain it, or they deny it, or in the case of Herod, they even try to murder what God is doing in the world. And how true of that is that of our own lives, that we ignore or deny the presence of Jesus. Either it doesn't look like we want it to, like the genealogy of Jesus, and so we ignore it, like it calls us into places we don't want it to. It doesn't look like we've defined it, so we just ignore it, or we deny it, or we reject it. I think this is another reason the Psalms of Ascent can be so helpful to us in this season, because they sort of train us to pay attention to what God is doing in the world. That's often the prayer in these Psalms, is just that they would pay attention as they enter into God's presence. Like, we just pay attention to what you're doing. And how much truer of that of us as a people who believe that we are a living temple and is that we enter into worship together, that we actually enter together in the presence of Jesus. So would we pay attention to the presence? Third, our task is to prepare him room. Solomon, David, even Mary in this story, they can't force God's presence to do anything. All they could do was prepare Make a temple, be a temple. It's the same task that we're invited into, to let go of control, our attempts to manufacture, our attempts to make God do something, our attempts to put hope in some other thing, to let go of those things and realize that God is coming down from the mountain to us so that we can receive his gift and his promise and his presence. And then as we understand that, as we submit ourselves to his presence and his work, our job is then finally to just leave as priests. To enter into the world as priests of God's presence. The apostle Peter says it this way, 1 Peter 2, 9, he says, but you, church, are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possessions, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Missio, Advent means that God's presence is with you. So go. 
in the presence of Jesus and declare the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Mr. God is in you. He is creating new possibilities for the world and for your own life. So go declare restoration is possible. That's actually what we do when we come to this table. It's one of the first and most consistent ways that we practice this. Receiving the gift of God, his presence to us. Submitting ourselves to it, receiving it, receiving the gift. And then as we leave this place, we go and attempt to extend what we've received here. The gift, grace, presence of God by telling his story. So miss you in a moment as we continue to worship. Would you come to this table and practice again receiving the presence of Jesus? And as you do, would you just take a moment to, to wrestle with the question, do I hope in the possibility of God's presence? Right now and right here. To hope in the story of Advent? Is that hope for me? Is that hope for the world? Bring that to the table. Let's pray. God, thank you that you're with us today. That you are with us as we gather, that you were promised, you literally promised to be present to us as we gathered in your name. So, Lord, would we help, would we pay attention to the reality of your presence? Would we know that you're here? Would we know that you're working, that you are active, that you have taken initiative long before us and will continue to do so despite us and after us? So would we pay attention and would we receive it? And then as we receive it, would we leave this place full of your presence, your priest? God be with us. In your name we pray. Amen.